Greetings program, hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie-by-minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie, Tron. This is Minute 40. I'm your host, Duncan Shields, and with me today is my exceptional, gallant, and ingenious guest co-host, Brett Stillo. Welcome, Brett. Oh, wow, you set, you put me in a corner. Now I actually <laughs> have to sound smart. Uh, well, I'll try, though. I'll try, though. Uh, hello, Duncan. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, you're uh, welcome. This is a lot of fun. This is uh, a movie I loved way back in 82, yeah. and I'm excited to talk about it. I haven't you, really uh, thought about this movie in a while. Why don't you uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself? Myself? Well, I'm I'm a part-time cast, podcaster and a full-time goof-off. And uh, I do filmmaking and some writing. And uh, I've done some of these movie minute podcasts. Though uh, my, uh, my cohort, Josh Horowitz, and I were, were kind of rebels because we do these five-minute podcasts. Oh, five uh, podcasts. minutes. Okay. Yeah, very controversial. We're doing it once a week, <laughs> five minutes, where, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very controversial. Some, some people don't talk about us. But we did uh, five minutes of trouble where we talked oh, about, yeah. a, uh, about uh, another movie from the 80s, uh, that being Big Trouble in Little China. And then we followed that up with five minutes of Bonsai, yeah. uh, the unofficial uh, – movie in that franchise we we loved connecting buckaroo bonsai and big trouble in little china there's some interesting thematic right. connections so but yeah this you know one minute per episode thing uh it doesn't work it's a complete <laughs> waste of time it's a five minutes once a week uh it, it gives you more time to sleep and eat personally but that's yeah that's my thoughts uh, on it i feel that i feel that for sure it definitely <laughs> takes up a lot of time it takes up a lot of time. That's one of the first rules of these movie by minute podcasts: is if you start it, finish it. Because I I realize why that rule is around now. Because about halfway through, you're like, "What have I done? Oh yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is taking up so much time." Oh but yeah, I'm, I kind of like that. Yeah, and you and you don't want to be one of those podcasts that everybody ta- sort of talks about. Never, never, you know, never like uh, publicly. But you know, hey, yeah. Yeah, whatever whatever happened to the so and so in it? What yeah. happened to those were, guys? Well, they were working on it and then they just uh disappeared. You know, yeah. like you, you yeah. don't want to be that, right? And you plus I love this movie that. so much. I couldn't believe it wasn't already on the list, so I just wanted to get in there and do it. It's a, it's a near and dear near and dear to my heart, so I'm glad I uh, got the chance to do it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, this is uh Yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, Tron has influenced so many movies. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, even though, you know, Tron Legacy, I think that did well at the box office. It did good. Yeah, it just seems like it's it's kind of faded from memory again. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Disney Plus, because they need lots of content. Right, right. I'm, I'm so, sure you've talked about this in, in previous episodes. I do think I saw they're developing uh, a new Tron series uh, or something for Disney Plus. Oh, good. I didn't see that. I know they've got a ride. Like, I know it's still a property that's getting passed around inside Disney, and I think they're just trying to figure out, so do we reboot it? Do we make another sequel? Do we do a cartoon? Do we do live action? What does it yeah. look like? Like, I think there's a lot of variables, because I, I watched Legacy recently, and I was like, that's a really good ender. That's a good capper. Yeah. You know, yeah, and it where, really where, sets, do you, where do you yeah. go from there, right? Yeah, I, I kind of had mixed feelings about Legacy. Overall, I liked it a lot. But I, one thing I thought was great about it was it really s- was a good franchise reboot. Yeah. And I truly, at the end of that movie, it's like, okay, what happens next? Where what do we go next? from here? And that was more. nine years ago. <laughs> Jeez, that was nine years ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, when I looked up Legacy and I was a little surprised because I thought, you know, that was movie was more like five years ago. It was like 2010. <laughs> I saw a tweet the other day that was like, the year 2000 was almost 20 years ago, which is strange because 1980 was also almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Very. Uh, something yeah. I feel. I feel that. I'm like, oh, wait a second. Well, I think that's one thing about this movie. And, you know, just looking at pop culture in general over the last gasp 40 years is... In a lot of ways, 
you know, we've had massive changes in some things that are almost sort of internal or invisible, yeah. you know, the yeah. technology definitely, but in a lot of ways it, it could very easily be 1980. We just need a few more, uh, Pontiac Firebirds on the streets. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, again, that's this movie, uh, there's certain elements it's it's dated uh yeah but it still looks sharp and i think in these minutes we see even though it's analog technology uh it's it's still a very sharp looking movie and again you see it's it's influence on i'll just say it you know stranger things sure okay you know stranger things for example i think just there's an aesthetic there's like a color palette yeah there are definitely drawing from with this movie well, that's the first time that there's been a comparison drawn between those two properties on this podcast. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's direct. Not direct, but of the era kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's there. I think it's just you know, that, that neon glow. Yeah. That uh you know, Tron has. And it's you know, as a side thing, I know that Los Angeles in the late seventies, early eighties, there was this neon, if you will, renaissance. Yeah. And I feel that's definitely a connection. And I think in in Stranger Things, you see that definitely in the titles. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. S- season three with the mall and the arcade. Yeah, uh, yeah, whether, very yeah, much so. Yeah, whether whether it's it's uh, intentional or not, I feel the arcade scenes in Stranger Things is a nod to Flynn's. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think we'll just arc like. Yeah, it's a nod to Flynn's and it's just a nod to arcades. You know, like arcades, it's hard to think of something more quintessentially 80s as the arcade. Yeah, that was, yeah. It was actually very brief. Like they had a very brief heyday of like four or five years. And then the home video systems came in with like Atari and Nintendo and stuff. And that kind of killed the arcade. And right. then arcades, arcades themselves, you know, went the way of like you know, heavy metal music and stuff like that, where the parents were like, you have to think of the kids. Arcades are ruining our youth. <laughs> and, uh, and that kind of, that kind of helped as well. That kind of helped put a, a death knell on them. And they became sort of, you know, a place for delinquents to hang out and they got less popular and then they just faded away. But that their heyday, that, that one moment, that two year spike where they were just the best. That, oh that yeah. A, it's a great, yeah. a great moment in time, I think. Do you uh, I, do you remember do you remember the first time you saw Tron? Oh, definitely, definitely. I remember the first time I heard about Tron. Uh, little background: uh, growing up in the seventies, I was a huge Disney freak. My whole family had this. We sort of had this family tradition of Disney. My my family originally came from Southern California, and oh, okay, yeah, like when my mom was a kid, she was there for the opening of Disneyland. Nice. So Disney was a big deal uh, as a kid, but we're talking about the Disney of the 70s, post-Walt Disney, pre-Michael Eisner. Right, sure. Yeah, and it's that whole awkward period of Herbie the Love Bug movies. Yeah, that strange, a cat from outer space, that strange bridge, yeah, you know. cat from outer space, perfect example. Uh, and they did that strange, like Tron kind of falls in that, that strange chapter where they were trying to do like family horror. Yeah. Yeah. They're you know, like just weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Another, uh, I don't know if it's, you've mentioned this in your podcast, but you know, just a few years earlier, uh, the black hole a movie yeah. with great potential, but they just, you know, they they had, it was more like they had, you know, they still had both feet in the old style of doing things, but yeah. Yeah, they're uh, trying to grow, right? They're trying to grow. But. Yeah, and uh, for me, when Tron comes out and I start reading about it, you know, it, it was a little like uh, if you're a sports fan, you know, when you have your team, whatever the sport is, football, Canada, perhaps hockey, but yes. you know, you have your team you grew up with and they aren't the dynasty they used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just kind of hoping, oh, they drafted this new guy. This this could be it. This could be the turnaround, and that was Tron for me. It was okay. You know, yeah, Cat from Outer Space, The Black Hole. They're following a trend. They're trying to yeah. figure out this Star Trek and Star Wars thing and copying it. 
yeah. thing that was excited me about when you know Tron and seeing the previews was, you know, they were they were now trying to create their own uh, their own franchise and yeah. use tech, you know, use new technology, and you know, and, and that's one thing why I was a Disney nut was, you know. They were in the forefront of special effects and, of course, animation for decades. And yeah. to see them just stumble and bumble uh, for almost a generation. Yeah. Yeah, this seemed like, um, you, know, and, you know, and, you know, Michael Eisner is involved in this. He's not the CEO yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, behind the scenes, I believe there was a bit of a power struggle. Yeah, it was going um, on during, yeah. Yeah, while this was happening. Ron well, they Miller. Were so, yeah, they were so surprised when Disney said yes. Like they had a like they need like this is this was supposed to be an entirely animated film uh with like no live action at all and they were going to do it themselves this little animation studio done by Steven Lisberger. But then a whole bunch of stuff fell through and they needed funding. And so they're like, oh, gosh, now we need somebody to help us. Now we need to take this to somebody and shop it around. And so they went to a bunch of different studios. But Disney was way down on their list. Disney was like, well, they'll say no to this for sure. Because Disney's tradition. Disney's, you know, they won't go for something out there and wackadoo like this. And Disney was the only one that said, yeah, sure. Because at the time, like you said, they were going through an upheaval and a struggle. And they were like... What do we do? What do we do? We need something. We need that Star Trek, that Star Wars, that's something that's going to bring us into the now. And uh, there was some young producer there that was like, yeah, sounds great. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, Steven you... Lisberger was like, what? Okay. Yeah. Really? Great. Late 70s Disney is following the trends. Yeah. And Tron is a statement that we are going to set our own trend. Yeah. And, you know, it did. It doesn't look like any other movie that was coming out. Uh, yes, truly unique, yeah. so unique. Amongst uh, movie fans and movie minute fans, there's there's a bit of an argument about which was the greater uh, year of summer movies. Was it 1982 or 1984? Yeah, I've, for me I've, it's 82. For me it's 82. But I understand the 84 argument. Sure. Yeah, I I think I would give '84 a slight edge. Oh yeah. Yeah, just you know, I I'm a huge uh, Ghostbusters fan. I'm a huge Gremlins fan. Sure. Uh, and of course, Buckaroo Banzai. But yeah. Uh, you know, a little background. I I graduated from high school in '82, okay. and I spent my entire summer summer at the at the movie theater. Yeah, and, no doubt. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, and again, just to just to go back, uh, you know, when I was a kid, at that key time to go to movies, there were no summer movies for kids. Right. There was there were if you were lucky, yeah, there was one Disney film they would release. Yeah. I don't know every three months, every six months, but I like to tell the story that uh, when I was uh, at nineteen seventy two, I'm eight years old and. Uh, my parents moved to the suburbs and, you know, there's local movie theaters. I can ride my bikes, bike, ride my bike, not my bikes. It's a little hard <laughs> to do that in plural. Uh, I could ride my bike to with my new friends. And, you know, from watching TV shows like Leave it to Beaver, I learned, oh, yeah, that's you, you ride your bike to go see a, a Saturday matinee. Okay. Can I do this? My parents are wholeheartedly like, yes, we've moved to the suburbs. We want you to go see a Saturday matinee. What's playing? Deliverance. Cabaret. <laughs> Play it again, Sam, with Woody Allen. And I, I just, I have a very clear memory of my parents just looking at the listings and really wanting me to have this, you know, American childhood experience, but just sort of scratching their heads and, uh, you know, the best they could do was the Poseidon Adventure, which is not a kid movie. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that's the, the difference between a 70s kid and an 80s kid was uh, I was I was a little deprived and uh, up until 1977 
when things started to change. But uh, by 82, yeah, I, I, I had a bit of a... Uh, uh, Sorry, we we can edit this out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I was uh, I was a bit undernourished, so even at eighteen, suddenly you know there's a new movie every week to go yeah, see. Yeah, six six weeks of just unrelenting hits. Yeah, just yeah. hit after hit after hit. It was an amazing an amazing year. Yeah, and there's this sudden, you know, there was a choice. You know, so, yeah. So what do you want? Yeah. So what do you want to do? Uh, Poltergeist or Star Trek? Um, you know, and they're you know arguing amongst friends. Which one do you want to see more? Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, you're no longer going to see movies just by default. You've got like, oh my gosh, there's a choice. We could see this or that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I was very excited about Tron. I remember the Time Magazine article on it. In fact, did it was it a cover story? Uh, Tron, he was on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Okay. I don't know if he was on the cover of Time. He might have been. There's a, there's a famous cover of the Rolling Stone with, uh, with Jeff Bridges in his, in his getup. He's not wearing a helmet. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's not wearing a helmet, but it's, yeah. it's the black yeah, and white. Yeah, he's not wearing the helmet cover. and he looks slightly stoned. A little, a little bit high. Yeah. Just you know? a little bit. It's, but that's I think that's just his natural uh because that the natural cast of his face you know? right He's right and all pretty chill yeah I've made notes about that uh in, as far as minute 40 but um so yeah I was very excited to see it and I think uh I did multiple viewings that summer and I can even the topper is uh later that summer uh going to Disneyland and uh, we were talking about arcades, and Disneyland at that time had one of the best arcades in the world. It was called oh. Starcade in Tomorrowland. Awesome. Yeah, it was a fantastic arcade. It was it was a lot like Flynn's. It was two stories. It uh, it was very retro futuristic because it was in the heart of Tomorrowland, right uh, near the entrance of Space Mountain. And yeah, they had the Tron video games there. And uh, the memory could be clouded, but it seems like uh, the Tron video game, you know, like the console was very elaborate and a little, and since it was at Disneyland, it was a little fancier than you'd see at local arcades. And as I recall, you could play different, like you could, you could either choose to do light cycles or space paranoids, or it might've been per level that you start off uh did you start off with the discs and then move to light cycles or something like I that I think you st- I I'm not sure if you could choose it's been a while since I played the game but I think you, I think it was levels I think you yeah. went through the the grid bugs then the light cycles then uh you had to shoot the the barriers around the MCP Right, then, right, 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 right. Yeah, I don't uh, remember that now. So, and then there was a tank. There was like a tank battle zone level as well. They didn't have, they didn't have a level like they've got in this minute in minute forty of the throwing the discs around, which is too bad. I don't know how they would have made that into a game, but, but yeah, they didn't kinda, have that. Kind of see it as a as a as maybe like Pong or doing something like a Space Invaders. Well, that's game, what, but... that's what they say with this minute here. Is they say that this was this whole sequence was a mixture of Hi-Li and Pong. Ah, I'm, right. thank you for mentioning Hi-Li. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, yes, let's, let's get, into... get this. That's a, that's a segue, folks. That's a segue. That was a perfect segue. So let us proceed segue. to so Minute what, 40. Minute 40. What happens in this minute? Flynn starts his first game against fellow new recruit Krom, who we met briefly earlier. And back in the cell, Tron and Ram discuss the new guy for a little bit. So there was at the end of the last minute, there was a yellow square of light that silhouetted two figures. And uh, they, the, what is it? The yellow square of light silhouetted two figures. They, yeah, they end up in the middle of concentric bullseye circle-shaped platforms on either side of the door with walkways leading up to them. 
And we get an interesting music cue here in the form of military-style marching snare music. It's quite unlike anything else in the movie. And I wonder if Wendy Carlos was directed to put this in or if it was her idea. Because I like it, but it does stand out as something a little different from the rest of the film. It almost feels like a, an execution is about to happen or something like that, which I guess yeah. is the point. It, yeah, it's it's very... It, it adds to the tension of the scene and the drama. And then you just have the, you know the composition of that opening shot you know the screen is black for a few yeah. seconds and then yeah. slowly the lights come on and uh you know just the setup here uh something also to bring up is we've got something else happening in pop culture and that's music videos yeah and this could be the beginning of a music video there's a certain Easily. rock and roll look here and yeah, yeah, Wendy Carlos, and uh, it's a great setup. And, you know, in a, a sense, this could be the start of the movie. Yeah, this could be the start of the movie. This is a wonderfully oh, a composed shot that could be. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. You know, and I like how uh, Flynn and Crom here, like Crom, looks up to Flynn with a defiant you know, dead eye stare like he's a tough guy and Flynn just gives him his big goofy Jeff Bridges smile. Like oh, yep, yep. classic Jeff Bridges, I classic. think. Classic. Yeah. It's that it's an allusion to that guy on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. I think one thing that is great about this movie is Jeff Bridges' performance. Well, he's the linchpin for sure. Yeah. He's a definite linchpin, but it's it's his whole attitude. You know, a movie like this uh, with the setup, you know, Flynn could have been much more. Oh, I'm trying to think of a of of a character and a scenario. You know, the Flynn could have been much more. What's happening? What's going on? Yeah, and yeah. you know, he Jeff Bridges rolls with it, and like this yeah. scene, you know, he's like, oh, oh, we're 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 gonna play hyperball. Cool. All right, fine. You know, he's sort of. You know, I mean, he is a stranger in a strange land, but in a sense, he created it. And he's sort of, you know, like, you know, it's it's a classic Jeff Bridges kind of bit where he's, you know, he he might have the line, I can't believe this is going on, but he laughs at it. <laughs> I don't yeah. believe it. Well, can you, can you dig this man? Yeah, uh, well, that's his, uh, that's like his role is the same as him and well, like he, well, I mean, he, he brings himself to the role. So that, that makes sense. But like he read the script and a lot of people passed on it because they were like, I don't understand what the heck this even is. You know, he goes into a computer, there's programs. I don't know what's going on. And so a lot of people passed on it, but he was like, Hey, that sounds wild. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I and think like, it's... you know, he, he, he met with the director and the director is like, always says, you know, like, Jeff Bridges was the first person to just be totally on board and be into it and say, sure, let's do it. That sounds wild, man. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah, that's, yeah. I don't get it, but I want, I'm into it. And, yeah. uh, you know, one thing I read is you might've read this, uh, you know, they, they apparently had Tron video games of some kind, or maybe, maybe they were just playing Atari video games on set. On set, and, yeah, it was. They didn't have Tron video games, but they just had a like our little arcade machines off the corner, okay, uh, out of out of camera range on the set for between takes. Yeah, and apparently, of you know, among the cast, this it's interesting. It's a generational thing because you nowadays you probably have to have video games, or I'm you know I'm sure, uh, you know, in, in actors' trailers, you know, they've got uh, a system you know, or a console. Yeah, their yeah. systems. Yeah, you know, their consoles, and they're going, and they're probably having contests, but. Uh, what I read was apparently none of the other actors were interested in playing video games oh, except for okay. Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I heard he was he was really into it, but I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that the other the other cast members weren't that into it. Yeah, because they and... they had to call they like they'd call him to set and he'd still be like going for a high score and he'd be like I'm doing I'm doing more research I'm doing more yeah. research you know? yeah and I think that I, I think we see that here yeah. uh, that it it's a it's it's set up as a tense scene. And you see, Crom is, uh, he's <laughs> yeah. got a, you know, he's got the game face. He looks like a, a professional wrestler. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, that classic goofy lopsided grin. Well, I on just think Jeff Bridges, like 
in the novelization and in the and in the screenplay, or, or like it's made clear that he thinks he's going to be taken to an arcade. <laughs> like he thinks he's going to go play some video games because he's like yeah. video games, great, sounds awesome, no sweat, I got this, I know how to do that. But I don't like even now he doesn't realize that these are these are fights to the death. Right. He's like, ah, oh, sure, we'll go play some tennis. I love this world. You know, and he's not really understanding because Crom here, Peter Jurassic, who's I think most science fiction TV fans know him from Babylon Five. He was on Babylon Five for a lot of seasons, right? I, I think he really he nails it in this scene because, like, Flynn doesn't realize what's at stake, but Crom does, and that if I was gonna step into a, an arena for a fight to the death, and my opponent gave me that goofy lopsided smile, that would scare the hell out of me. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be like, what? Either this guy's an idiot or I'm about to get killed immediately, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, yeah, because he just doesn't take Crom seriously. I, uh, funny thing, I did not recognize Peter Jurassic at first. Uh, Mm -hmm. I forgot he was in the movie. Um, And also, you know, it's, yeah, I definitely knew him from Babylon 5. But, you know, that's another fun thing about this movie is there's a lot of uh, character actors who, when I was a kid and I saw this, didn't register. But now, you know, almost 40 years later, you know, all these people have, you know, huge bodies of work and you go, oh, okay. So, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, I kind of wonder if, uh, you know, there's that interesting connection with Boxleitner in Jurassic. Uh, I don't know if that, you know just a oh, happy yeah. accident or a casting director said, you know, was involved or something like that. Cause they both ended up on Babylon five. Right. 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 And, uh, and then, you know, uh, just a funny Babylon five trivia because y- you gotta love Peter Jurassic. He just has a mug. He has yeah. one of those faces. He uh, really does. Yeah. And he, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's a score of other guys who have that mug too. Um, I just blanked on his last name, but, you know, a great character actor, uh, Wayne, you know, Newman from, not Wayne Newman, uh, but, you know, played Newman on, on Seinfeld oh, right. and of yeah, course. And Jurassic, uh, Jurassic Park and stuff like yeah, that. Jurassic Park. And, you know, he, they look alike and, uh, you know, also the great, uh, the late, great, uh, Stephen first, uh, flounder yeah. from animal house who ironically, right. you know, he and Jurassic were on Babylon Five together playing. What, That's what, right. Were they were they, were they the Zentradi, or yeah, something uh, like that? Yeah, but you know they 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 had uh, you know they had the very goth peacock hairdos. Yeah. So right. uh, yeah, I thought that was a little ironic because I thought, is that Stephen First? Oh no, it's it's Peter Jurassic. It's his boss on Babylon Five. So that's right. You know they were definitely like, hey, let's have these two guys with mugs, and. Uh, so yeah, it's it's you, you got the cool guy, who uh, you know he's he's like Jeff Spicoli, and you get you know you get Flounder, and they're gonna play yeah. Highlight. They're gonna and, play Highlight. Yeah, and does anybody it's, remember Highlight? Well, that's it. we're gonna we'll get into Highlight in a bit here. I did some okay. research on uh, on Highlight, but right now, so the gold glowing door behind them closes, leaving mm-hmm. them in blackness except for the white outlines of the rings and the walkways to the rings. And this shot here, we got this beautiful crane shot moving up, giving more body to the to the ring arena platforms as they, they come into their perspective changes on them, showing them in more detail. And this must be one of those rare shots in the movie of the actual set kind of as is, with little to no processing besides it being black and white. Because you see, like at this distance, the, the characters aren't even glowing. It's just mm-hmm. they're black and white. There's white lines on the ground. And as they get to the centers of their circles, the walls of the rooms light up and the walkways retract and you get these chevrons. And, you know, that really, that should have been a clue for Jeff Bridges right there as the walkways disappear. That's kind of like, oh, so we're trapped here now. But that's <laughs> uh, that's the that one shot there is like, wow, there's like no processing on this shot. So this yeah. must have been kind of, this is the actual set. Because it's rare in this movie to see the set kind of as is. You just, you always see it processed. So that's kind of cool. That's very it, cool. 
it's interesting because the lighting and the and the DOP people had to walk a fine line because they had to they had to light the characters as brightly as possible with as little shadow as possible, but they also had to be careful not to light up any of the black set. It's interesting that I usually love to get the behind the scenes stuff and yeah. you know how did they do that and you know in a sense lifting the hood up and looking at the engine of the movie, but. I, you know, this movie looks so cool. I sort of wanted to keep the magic alive. Yeah. And so I, you know, for this podcast, I, I didn't want to go there. I, I didn't want to really get into uh, backlit animation and process sure. shots. I just kind of wanted to, to, to just be in awe of it all. And yeah, so. We've, yeah, we've, we've gone pretty deep on the whole processes before in earlier minutes. Yeah. And it's but fascinating it seems, stuff. Yeah, I can imagine just what a what a potential technological nightmare this was for uh, yeah. Bruce Logan and his team and lighting yeah. things and the very arduous, very arduous, really, yeah. really hard. Yeah, and uh, but and you can kind of with what you're saying, you can kind of see it in this scene the different elements and um, just yeah. you know the ch- yeah I think the challenge for the actors of being on an empty soundstage. Yeah, uh, that's the that's the one thing. Like all, act, I mean, today most actors I think have that similar challenge of like, okay, there's ten wolves and they're jumping at you right now. I'm like, okay, where are they? Well, they're not in the room. We're gonna add them in post, but be really scared. You know, you're like, ah, uh, okay. So I have a lot of respect for actors these days that have to work against a tennis ball on a stick. Like, what was the one? The guy that played uh, Gandalf, there, Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen, he, yeah. He had a fit during The Hobbit and stormed off the set because he was talking. He was in a scene where he was talking to like twelve hobbits, but mm-hmm. they were just tennis balls on sticks with pitchers on them. <laughs> and there was yeah. a red light. There was a red light underneath each pitcher, and so the red light would go on for if that hobbit was talking. So he had to like emote and look at the different tennis balls on sticks and it was like you know take 20 and he'd done you know this was his fourth movie doing that and he was like i can't do this i can't do this anymore this is not working who can act under these conditions and then he apologized and came back but you feel it right like you feel him you're like yeah that's yeah there's there's acting there's like playing pretend and then there's like okay i need something i need something so but at least in these at least in these scenes they have each other right exactly in an earlier minute, somebody brought up the point that all these struggling actors that, you know, climb the ladder to eventually become big time actors have probably done a lot of off off Broadway theater. And all those off off Broadway theaters are just black boxes. You would think. You right? would think. Right. So being in a room like this is probably familiar to them. It's probably yeah. not that alien. So, like, what's happening? is a bit high concept for them and they have to roll with it. But just, you know, being in a basic costume in a black space with only another actor to work off of would be familiar to most of them and not that abstract. Yeah. Funny thing. I remember this era reading Starlog diligently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You'd get interviews with actors and they'd say, uh, yeah, just say, um, Harrison Ford talking about, or anybody for that matter, but, you know, talking about these, these process shots. And, you know, at that time they were blue screens, not green screens. That's right. And just, you know, the, the difficulty of looking and, you know, somebody saying, okay, now there's a spaceship coming towards you. And, uh, you know, sort of grumbling about that similar to Ian McKellen's freak out. And, it's funny as a kid, I just would read these and say, "Well, yeah, don't you? Can't you imagine stuff? Can't you play? You know, yeah. can't you just kind of it's take it back to when you were pretending there were, uh, you know, hordes of zombies like, coming yeah. towards you or, or whatever? So, yeah, you know, like isn't that what you do? Yeah, isn't that your job? You know, like you, you're a pretender for a living, yeah. so you yeah. just got to pretend a little harder. And you, again, you gotta. I, You'd yeah. have to look at it as something fun. I imagine you'd have to look at it as something fun. Otherwise, it would just grind on you. Yeah. And again, I think that's where, uh, especially in this minute and in the next minute, uh, the playfulness 
of yeah. Jeff Bridges. So, you know, don't know what it was like on the set. I could kind of see maybe Bruce Boxleitner is struggling uh, yeah. with some of his scenes. And it just, I, oh, I don't, uh, this, is, this is so weird. Can well, I have he, a stuntman? No. Uh, he was, he was uh, like, he, he, he talks a lot about being on the back of his horse filming a Western because he was in a lot of Westerns before Tron. That's right. So he's got this big handlebar mustache on, and he's reading the script for Tron on the back of a horse. <laughs> and he's like, I don't get it. And he tells his agent, yeah, I pass. No. And then they came back and said, dude, we, we need you. And Jeff Bridges has said yes. He said, oh, Jeff Bridges has said yes. Okay, I'll do it. And then <laughs> he said yes two weeks before they started filming, right? So it was like... Or even shorter, I think. But he, had, yeah, he got kind of in there at the last minute, and then so he didn't understand a lot of it. And yeah, he's very well cast, I think, and it works well off of uh, off of Jeff Bridges. But he's not called on to be anything more than kind of a, you know, good guy, Boy Scout kind of character. He's a bit of a shallow character, so that's like no no fault of Bruce Boxleitner, but he does yeah. a good job, I think, with what yeah. he's given. He's a no-nonsense missionary almost, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but, um, you know, this minute ends with a with a very interesting shot of uh, uh, Tron, and I just forgot his name. Ram, the other Ram, guy. Ram, thank you. Ram. Um, you know, and Tron looks so stoic. And... So stoic. So stoic, yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting shot because uh, just the composition. I don't know if that was uh, a decision made because of lighting and you know again all the technical aspects of it, but it's it's almost like something in a music video or it looks like an album cover, you know, yeah. the way they're sort of posed and I am in the foreground and I am contemplating and I am you know I, I'm in the background sort of uh, you know looking over your shoulder, but I'm not. It it it, it could very well be there, you know. They're in different. Uh, they were shot differently, and then it was just edited together later. But uh, it just yeah. the the way they're almost breaking the fourth wall, but not quite. Almost, and, yeah. They're both, yeah. They're both looking almost right at the camera. That's interesting. Yeah. But it's it's one of the things I like about this movie is it's got a lot of interesting shots in terms of its composition, and it uh, again it there's times it reminds me of a music video. Yeah, for sure. This could have been a, a, you know, it'd be cool to cut it together to some uh, to some good music and oh, make yeah. a music video out of it. I think yeah. that would be a, a fairly if, fairly good challenge in editing school or something like that. Yeah, if I if I could have been the pipsqueak kid, you know, the the executive's nephew who was a PA on this movie, so you know, I would uh, I would be begging him to put Devo in a cameo. What's that? Who? Oh, I'd be I would be begging them to fit Devo in the movie. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Somebody else mentioned that at the last minute. Like Devo is this would be perfect for Devo. Yeah. They should have done a. They yeah, I mean, you know, the music. They 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 were animated into uh, into heavy metal the the summer before, but they just yeah. Have, Devo was. Have, yeah, Devo in uh, heavy metal. Uh, was it the with the the warrior? woman in the end was it liana anyway oh, yeah yeah there's a uh there's a bit of a star wars cantina riff That's where right. she goes into a bar full of weirdos and uh i think it's we're through being cool um Gosh, it's been a while but yeah it's it is it's there's a weird you know a bunch of new wave uh cyborgs playing a devo song and it's it may not it 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 may not be uh, intentionally Devo, but it is, you know, it is, you know, the band is synced to Devo. So right. uh, I, I would call that a cameo. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so something about the art direction in this arena is the walls have a big green Chevron on Crom's side and a big red Chevron on Flynn's side. Right. Um, and I, I guess the colors are arbitrary and don't take the, they don't take on the color of the actual program that's on the platform. But in the book, there's like, well, and in the movie, and but they don't really go into it. There's blue, red, yellow, and green. And <laughs> each of the programs have a different function. Like blue is for neutral programs that believed in the users and some NCOM security programs like Tron. 
Red doesn't believe in the users and are loyal to the MCP and are sometimes military programs. And green is also military programs like the tank drivers, sort of more of a aqua or a cyan. And then a yellow is the hacker search programs like Clue was in the very, very beginning. So this arena looks like it might initially have been designed for fights between two military programs. But we'll see. That, yeah. That, but I, it's I an can aside. see that. Yeah. Maybe. And then so they get to the centers and we see that each of them has that uh, huge unwieldy scoop grafted onto their arms. Like a, that's called a, a cesta. And uh, uh, in fact, I'm not entirely sure that they still have right hands. It almost looks like a, an attachment for the Borg or something like that. It's not like a glove. It's like it's been welded onto their onto their hands. Like they've yeah, been that's a really good point. Yeah. Like they've been programmed to have a different hand, which I think opens up a whole new world of possibilities you know you have shovel hands or sword hands or axe hands or whatever and so yeah Krom gives raises his scoop and flynn kind of waves back like yeah yeah when when in rome i guess you know yeah it's a it's a classic whatever yeah yeah i guess i guess it's i guess we do this and then uh there's a clunky buzzer sound a really a really kind of harsh buzzer sound and this hinged arm comes out with a sphere at the end and drops a uh, an energy ball down to Krom. It's a very weird that that arm is a very Don Bluthy kind of animation. It's kind of uh, one of the it's one of the only animations in the film that kind of breaks my immersion and kind of throws me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's in, it, that's a good call mentioning Don Bluth, but yeah, it, it has to me just. Aesthetically, there is something very Disney-esque about the the motion of it, and yeah, you know the the shade of blues you see in this and the greens. It's it's I I don't know if they were going back to the old nineteen forties Buena Vista color palette, but you know there's there's a little bit of a Fantasia hue to it. Yeah, yeah, it almost feels like a bit of a throwback to some of the original concepts for the film because in the original concepts it had more squash and stretch and expressive looking characters. There was like yeah. a bull, there was like a floating cowboy with no legs. The yeah. MC the MCP had like two henchmen named Frick and Frack right? that, <laughs> that like comically did his bidding and they were even they were even like eyeing Robin Williams at one point to be the lead because they were thinking it wanted to be more comedic. One of the one of the people that was involved in the inception of it was Bonnie McBird, and she gets a story credit in the film. But they ended up parting ways in the production pretty early on, and they ended up going more with Steven Lisberger's idea than her sort of more comedic tone. And it kind of seems like it was a bitter break, which is too bad. But when I hear about the concepts, I'm kind of happy that we ended up with what we got, rather yeah. than a more sort of I don't I wouldn't have wanted to see this as a more comedic film. I mean, it would have been interesting. But I like, I really like what we got. Yeah, because it's 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 the you know the very serious tone to me. It's uh, there's there's a in terms of its tone and its drama, it reminds me of one of my favorite Disney Disney films, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah, which is you know just a straight ahead two fisted adventure movie, and while very different films. I feel that they both have, you know, a very grim uh, kind of an outlook. It's you know, both 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 movies have characters on missions. Yeah, and uh, no, nothing's going to get in the way of completing that mission. And, it's been a while. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen that movie in a long time. I should watch that again. Yeah, but, I mean, again, that you, you know, that's a movie that. You know, was cutting edge special effects in 1954, and you know yeah. Disney was, you know, really made a statement. You know, it's like top this, <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, I think they, you know, for a while they could they could kind of hold that one up. Um, but it, yeah, that was their big sort of look at this. That was their full house for that year for sure. Absolutely, and I think this is to me. You know, they had tried to do movies to kind of recapture 20,000 Leagues, like the island at the top of the world. But no, something missing. But Tron uh, has, you know, Tron has some great actors. 20,000 Leagues has some great actors. And 
very little comedy, very little cute. Yeah. There's a few dashes here and there. Yeah. But it's um it's it's a lot of there's a lot of clenched jaws in both movies. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, a lot of those clenched jaw muscles for sure. One thing that's interesting is uh when Crom like the, it drops the, the the glowing energy ball drops from the from the arm into Crom's Sesta and he catches it pretty easily. And he's nervous, but he's done this before and we haven't seen him for a while. When we first met him, he was thrown into the cell saying, you know, my, my user is going to be real angry. He's a full branch manager. When he hears about this, you know, like he's just a, like a banking program or whatever. But we haven't seen him for a while. And he was able to catch this pretty easily. So he's been in a few fights, which means that he's killed a few people at this point. So he's this innocent little banking program, but he's he's killed a few people in the games at this point. So that's why he has like just a, just a drop of confidence. He has just yeah. a little a little bit of confidence. So yeah. he's he's killed at least one person and maybe a couple to uh, to survive. Yeah, that's interesting because I forgot uh, his his backstory or the, the that it alludes that he's you know he's he's an accounting program. Yeah, uh, because yeah he's. He is out to kill Flynn. He's got he's got murder in his eyes, and it's you know it's that uh, yeah. great contrast. It's the guy who is going to win at any cost, and it's the guy who's just hey, it's just another game, man. Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because like, and then he says one of my favorite lines in the film. He looks right at Flynn and he says, "You think you're going to wipe me right out, don't you?" You know, and it's just he's such a good actor because it's so full of bravado, but it's also scared with just a yeah. bit of confidence, you know, and it's still I mean, that's something that I say to myself to this day. Like if, <laughs> if, if if life is crowding me or it's getting too much to bear or some project I'm working on is like really kicking me. I, I just think, you know, you think you're going to wipe me right out, don't you? <laughs> you yeah. know? And, it, and it makes me smile and kind of redouble my efforts and and, you know, give it all, give it my all in the face of what looks like bad odds but yeah and jurassic also says it with a you know there's a little bit of a new york there yeah yeah, yeah. you think you're gonna wipe me right out don't you you know like, yeah that. yeah i mean this is a guy who, who could easily have been in a scorsese film at the time maybe maybe he he worked with scorsese but again <sighs> he just looks like a guy you'd see in a godfather movie or absolutely yeah um, he'd be perfect yeah and i think that just adds to uh the movie and this scene is you got a pretty rough looking guy. Uh, so it's a, yeah. So we're, we're off to a great contest. Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, Crom throws his first, uh, energy ball. It bounces off the ceiling. It goes down and, uh, Flint rushes, Flynn rushes over to catch it, but he gets there too late and it disappears. It derezzes the outer ring of his platform in a great video game sound effect as the, uh, as the energy ball hits it. And uh, he almost falls off. And we get this, he's like windmilling his arms and almost falling off. And we get one shot, a weird shot of the bottomless pit, the drop down to the floor. Or there is no floor. It's just a bottomless elevator shaft underneath the, uh, underneath the platform. But it doesn't really come across. It almost looks like an insert shot of a modern art painting. <laughs> something like that you know because it's it's i think it's supposed to be this vertigo inducing you know zoom in and pull out vertigo you know bottomless scary shot but those things at the bottom look kind of like blades so i guess maybe they look like blades of uh glass maybe you fall on those and, and get diced or something like that but it just kind of looks like shapes i i sort of get the intent but this is one of the shots i think that didn't quite make it and I, I don't know how you would shoot a black bottomless pit you know we need we, yeah. need, a, we, we need a black bottomless pit i'm like well that's just called a black screen like what do you what do you want me to do <laughs> you know yeah. so they did they did what they could right and then so right. I think, yeah. yeah i think it's also um something you see in these minutes uh you know in a, in a modern film like this a cgi movie and we've had now two decades of this yeah. You know, so much is thought out, uh, uh, storyboarded and planned that they, you know, they sort of know. But I think in this movie, 
you know, you know this is I, I'm just imagining the challenge of you know shooting so many of these scenes on you know blank sound stages and having yeah. minimal sets and uh, yeah you have those moments where uh, you know what they what they sh- there was what they shot and then what maybe they added in post production and they don't you know sort of like they were they're, yeah. they're afterthoughts in this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a couple shots where they're like oh. So what do we what do we do for this shot? It's like I well yeah. I thought you knew like oh uh, okay <laughs> you know because some things must have fallen through the cracks because almost every shot here is so effort intensive yeah you know like I'm sure there was stuff that's left on the back burner until uh, we we got to be in theaters in a month so let's finish this scene <laughs> like right now it's like okay all right I'll do it I'll do it I'll do it right because there wasn't there wasn't a huge team you know and so. They were all pulling a lot of hours to get this out the door. Like that, uh, like his disintegration scene, like when he gets sucked into the computer, right? This one animator was given a few stills and told, okay, you know, make him disappear and get sucked into the computer. He's like, okay. So he's like animating all the bolts of energy and animating the grid around him that has to turn into like a, a wire mainframe all over his body and bits of him get disappeared he was just like uh he dove into that and it took him a really long time i can so, imagine yeah it's like it's, it is a it is a great effect and like i said i i didn't delve too much into the how they did it stuff because i i sort of wanted it to well it's more fascinating i think to the 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 themes of the movie like the the how it was made is fascinating because so much of what they did has never been done again because like uh-huh. in the in the process of making this movie they developed a lot of techniques that they've improved on while they were filming the movie so they invented them and then by the time the movie was done they'd figured out a better way to do it so they that's the the process was never done again it was a one shot for this movie wow and but at the same time, like in this scene here, when they've got the energy balls in their cestas, the glow on their bodies from the energy ball, that's all hand done by animators from Disney that were working on the Jungle Book and stuff like that. Like these are these are effects animators at Disney that have been doing effects in movies for the last forty years at that point. Right. So you've got all this old school animation marrying with this like bleeding edge invented just for the movie technology and to make it all look and it was four different effects houses that were doing all the different things so to make it all look into one the art direction needed to make it all look like a cohesive movie done by one production company is a real it's a miracle it's really amazing (laughs) that they managed to get that all working but anyway so we get Flynn regains his balance he realizes, oh gosh, this is real, and I could die. And Crom laughs, momentarily reveling in the triumph. And uh, then we cut back to the cell, and Rom and Tron are talking. And Rom says, the new guy was asking about you. And Tron says, well, it's too bad he's in a match now. I'll probably never meet him. And Ram says, well, you might. There's something different about him. He likes him. And that's uh, that's the end of the minute. But there's a good there's a good bit here. At second fifty five, just after Tron says, "Probably," he's like, "Well, uh-huh. he's in a match now. I'll probably never meet him." The walls of the cell pulse with light. Oh, I missed that. And that's that's... that's a flaw. Oh. One thing that they did. I mean, this is another one, and every time it happens, I I got to bring it up because I, I look out for it now. They were given all these boxes of film, but they were just picking up the boxes willy-nilly and filming with them. So they were using box <laughs> box 56 right next to box 4, and there'd be these sudden jumps in brightness when they'd gone from one box to the next. And they're like, what, what is this? We can't use this. <laughs> this is just going to... Suddenly the characters are super bright out of nowhere. And they were like, well... What we'll have to do is we'll just have to make, I don't know, make the walls pulse with light or something or make yeah. like an, an energy 
burst go past in the background or something and that will light the characters up for a second and that'll be the excuse so this was what they did to sort of cover up the mistake but it has the backhanded effect of making the world seem really alive and, and yeah really dim, yeah you know a happy accident a happy because, accident as they say uh yeah it's i think that's one thing that makes this movie still you know so great all these years later is yeah it, it pulsates in an unpredictable way it's it's we are in this computer uh land of oz but it's in a lot of ways it's organic you know it's it's a computer movie before uh cgi really yeah so there's this definite organic you know you just mentioned uh hand-tinted uh cells which i I kind of figured there was some of that going on, but you know, that's painstaking and very old school. But I think that's one reason why this movie looks still looks so fresh all these years later. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a certain, certain level of timelessness to it because it's so high concept and out there, you know, and the art direction on it is just like, it's not dated in a way that other properties from the eighties are dated, you know? Yeah. Very true. yeah, the real world shots are are pretty dated. They're pretty firmly in the eighties, but but that brings us to the end of minute forty, where well, I like to go over a little bit about the differences in the novel and the screenplay, and the movie. Okay. Uh, but the novel, Flynn starts the conversation with Crom, and he says, "Looks like we're in the same boat here." Crom is a little mystified as to why he's seeing another blue program in the arena, but he figures. Flynn knows what's going on and is down for murder and wants to kill Crom to prove his loyalty to the MCP to become a Red Warrior elite. So he's like, oh, oh, this is this guy's out to kill me. He's out for blood. <laughs> and uh, and there's a, there was a montage of a training sequence that was cut from the film. And uh, he was they, they know each other from from that. OK, so there you go. the screenplay makes sense. Much. Yeah. Funny, I was such a novelization nerd at that oh, yeah. time. And it's funny, I can't remember reading the novelization of Tron, but I, I figure that period, I must have read it. But, you know, and you get those. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, one thing I love about novelizations is, yeah, you get all that stuff from the screenplay. Yeah that's cut out and you get those, you know, those great little bits like that, like inner, uh, yeah. Inner monologues, little explanations of people's motives and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. It adds a richness to the characters that, and also sort of fills in some blanks that maybe accidentally didn't make it onto the screen. <laughs> like, yeah, why, yeah. Did, why did this character do this? And you, know, you read the novelization, you're like, Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess uh, that wraps up minute 40. So um, That was a good minute. That, that was, was a good minute. minute. That was a really solid minute. <laughs> uh, where can uh, where can people find you if they want to hear more of you? At my house. Uh, oh, yeah. But online, online, yeah. Uh, our shows are wrapped. My show's with Josh Horowitz. Uh, but you can still listen to them. You can go back and listen to the thrilling adventures of Jack Burton on Five Minutes of Bonsai. <laughs> oh no! Whoa! 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 whoa, whoa. whoa. Again, the movies they they cross the streams. Uh, you can uh, listen to Josh and I talk about Buckaroo Bonsai on Five Minutes of Bonsai. We had some awesome guests on that one. Uh, before that, we did Five Minutes of Trouble, uh, and that was about the adventures of Jack Burton. And Lopan and all that good stuff. Uh, so yeah, you can hear you can definitely hear us there. And, uh, and I might I might mention a few other things uh, that I've been up to in our next episode. Yeah. So that's awesome. a reason to tune in, right? <laughs> yeah. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can check out more at tronologicallyspeaking.com. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us on Twitter or Gmail. Uh, just go tronologically speaking at gmail.com or look us up on Twitter at tronologically speaking or join us on Facebook at the tronologically speaking minute by minute listeners page. Uh, thanks to pond5.com for the opening and closing music. And special thanks to the Star Wars Minute that started it all. And go on over to moviesbyminutes.com and see if your favorite movie is there. 
I believe uh, the five minutes of bonsai and the five minutes of trouble are both there. And they uh, definitely are. If you don't see your favorite movie there, consider doing it yourself because it's a, it's a labor of love, but it's a lot of fun to do and it's a very welcoming and encouraging community. Do you want to uh, try a little end of line on three? Oh, what is the end of line? I think I, you sent me a... Oh, you just got to say end of line. That's it. Oh, okay. Like, uh, like the MCP. Yeah. Okay. I for, you, you sent me and I forgot about that one. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, okay. well, what is the end of line? End of line. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Abbott and Costello. Okay, on three. Yeah, on three. One, two, three. End, end of, of line. line. Oh, nailed it. <laughs>